I'm Rob Sims from History in the Making. Ryan was kind enough to let me do his introduction. Now, as we have heard from Ryan for dozens of episodes now, Athens has continued to evolve. From the very first hints of democratic reforms from Solon that you heard in episode 25, to the changes of Cleisthenes that Ryan covered in episode 27, to the final stages of democracy that takes place decades from now, Athens has been and will be many things, but it is never stagnant. In the last episode, we saw the Persians sent back across the Aegean Sea, a new sea power emerging Greece, and Athens is beginning to grow powerful as it begins its golden age. But many people have different ideas of how this power should be used. What should Athens focus its power on, and how should it try to shape its future? In fact, so many things go on in Athens, between bloody wars, masterpieces of theater, and evolving society, that it is virtually impossible to cover all of it. Ryan and I are both focusing on about the same periods of time with our respective podcasts, and we can hardly cover all of it. Fortunately, Greece is as fascinating as it is busy, so if you want even more stories of Greece in your life, come visit me on History in the Making, where we are beginning the Great Peloponnesian War that takes place right around 4.30. Thanks again, Ryan, for letting me introduce the show, and now, listeners, here is your host to take you into the Golden Age. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 40, Warhawks and Peace Doves. The Persian danger produced a unity in Greece, unseen before, but as that external pressure began to fade in the ensuing decades, the facade of unity also faded, and the course of Greek affairs took a markedly new and unexpected course. For the last half-century, Sparta had been the predominant power in mainland Greece. They had become the head of the Peloponnesian League, and had intervened in various capacities in Greek affairs, both domestic and abroad. And so their hegemony, in the common resistance to Persia, was recognized without dispute by their allies. With their commanders having been in charge of all three Greek victories— at Salamis, Plataea, and Mycale, it seems that the Greek world, after the war, laid at Sparta's feet. But Sparta did not have the means to carry out an effective, hegemonic imperial policy. They were a people unable to adapt to new conditions. Their city, their constitution, and their spirit were remnants of old Greece. The government was conservative by tradition. Reforms were unwelcome. A man of exceptional ability was hampered, such as Cleomenes. The formation of a navy would have seemed to them as unpractical an idea as an expedition against the capital of Persia itself. In the war, 
They had generally acted at the last moment, begrudgingly, with a lack of foresight, as their view was so limited by the smaller interests of the Peloponnese. But even though Sparta was so ill-equipped to be hegemon over a political union of all Hellenic states, not just those from the Peloponnese, they were sufficiently powerful enough to prevent a rival from achieving that too. And the events of the preceding century will be that struggle between two superpowers, a conservative Sparta and a democratic imperialistic Athens. The major sources for the period after the Persian Wars, since Herodotus's account ended at Sestos, and before the Peloponnesian War, are Plutarch, in his Lives of Aristides, Themistocles, Cimon, and Pericles, and parts of Book I of Thucydides, those being 1.89 to 1.117, which is known as the Pentacontatia, or the 50 years, because it refers to the roughly 50 years between the end of the Persian War and the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. However, Thucydides deals with these events only in a brief, cursory fashion. Diodorus gives some extra information, but his probable source was the 4th century BC historian Ephorus, who in turn generally relied upon Thucydides. And so, our more detailed historical source is Plutarch. However, even Plutarch, with his penchant for biography, did not write the lives of any 5th century BC Spartans, with the exception, of course, of Lysander, who will come at the end of the century. And so much of what he has to say about the Spartans is embedded in his lives of the Athenian statesmen. The weakness of having to use Plutarch as your main historical source, though, is that his driving aim in his biographical lives was to portray the moral worth or in some cases, a lack thereof, in his subjects, so as to inspire later generations. As a consequence, his belief in the heroic qualities of Aristides and Cimon, for example, led him to write their lives fulsome in its praise and permeate it with virtually uncritical respect, especially for their conservative political ideology and their gentleness towards Athens' naval allies. By contrast, Themistocles is portrayed as the clever, devious and unscrupulous politician and general, as the demagogic champion of the navy and its rowers, who supported a policy of radical democracy and imperialism over their naval allies. So it is clear that these biased stereotypes must lead to a cautious use of Plutarch, whose lives must be cross-examined, where possible, with the evidence of Thucydides. However, it is still possible to discern from Plutarch the underlying issues of foreign and domestic policy that divided the factions of Themistocles and Cimon in this period, even if Plutarch wraps it up with an overarching moral undertone. Whatever the cause of Themistocles' unpopularity in 479 BC, and we speculated as to why last episode, it obviously didn't last very long. Both Plutarch and Diodorus suggest that he was quickly restored to the favor of the Athenians following the Persian War, and seems to have enjoyed a rebirth of popularity, as the city began to rebuild itself under his guidance. Since Athens was no longer being occupied by the Persians, the city was repopulated with its former inhabitants in late 479 BC. But Athens was in ruins, as very little was left intact after two Persian sackings. Houses and temples were torn down and plundered, and the Acropolis was razed so bad that it was just a hill again. 
The Athenians wanted to prevent this from happening ever again, so Themistocles urged the people to build bigger and better defensive walls around the Acropolis and the city. Thucydides reports that this led to many complaints by some polis to Sparta, especially Corinth, Megara, and Thebes. Corinth had a large navy and was a commercial power and did not want the Athenians to become too powerful and thus surpass them in those areas, which was looking more and more to be the case at this point. Furthermore, the Peloponnesians did not want all of that power concentrated into one city, and so, at least without a wall, if Athens went rogue, they could be neutralized by their land army. Thucydides writes, quote, It was partly that they themselves would rather see neither the Athenians nor anyone else having a wall, but more that their allies were urging them, frightened of the size of the Athenian fleet and of the daring which the Athenians had shown in the Persian War. End quote. And so, it is evident that the role of the Athenian navy in beating back the Persians had radically altered the balance of power in Greece, and it was uncertain how the Spartans were going to accommodate this shift. The Spartans sent some ambassadors to Athens, and they spoke before the ecclesia. In trying to dissuade Themistocles and the rest of the Athenians from fortifying Athens, the Spartans did not express openly their suspicion with regard to the Athenians but disguised it with the bizarre argument that a walled Athens could be used as a fortified base by the Persians should they return, completely ignoring the argument that a walled city might make the city less likely to be captured again. They continued that for this reason, no city outside the Peloponnese should have walls, and even invited the Athenians to join them in raising the walls of any non-Peloponnesian city. Not surprisingly, Themistocles found this line of reasoning unpersuasive. The Spartan ambassadors were then dismissed from the Ecclesia with the message that Athenian ambassadors shortly will arrive in Sparta to discuss the issue further. Since the name of Themistocles was associated with the wall, it was inevitable that an anecdote, true or not, would be circulated to illustrate the resources and wiliness of the Athenian Odysseus. According to Thucydides, he offered to be the one who traveled to Sparta to smooth things over and discuss the issue. While most of the Spartans did not have the highest opinion of the Athenians, they respected Themistocles for his military prowess and bold leadership. His bribes, no doubt, also went a long way. On his way to Sparta, he traveled very slowly. Furthermore, when he finally arrived at Sparta, he refused to speak with the E-4s because he said that he couldn't start negotiations until his other colleagues had arrived, giving them the excuse that they had been detained in Athens by some other unforeseen engagement. Of course, nobody was actually coming. He was just stalling for time. Because before he had left, he gave the Athenians instructions to start building a wall with whatever they could find. Very little of the old wall was still standing, and so they used material from other buildings, even column drums, sculpted stones, and gravestones, and the entire population pitched in to build this patchwork wall with much haste. Every able-bodied person, including women and children, worked day and night. The traces of this haste can be detected to this day in some of the remains of this Athenian wall near the Dipolon Gate in the northwest part of the city. 
Of course, this endeavor couldn't be kept a secret for long, and word soon enough reached the Spartans. When he was questioned, Themistocles deceitfully responded that they were not building any walls, and that those were just rumors. And if they did not believe him, they should just go look for themselves. Themistocles then volunteered to stay in Sparta, while a delegation was sent to investigate. He then secretly sent word to the Athenians to prevent the Spartan ambassadors from leaving Athens, just in case the Spartans refused to let him leave. And so, when they arrived and saw that the rumors were true, and in fact the wall had been finished, they were taken hostage, and the Athenians then sent Lysicles and Aristides to Sparta to give Themistocles the news that the wall was finished and the Spartan ambassadors were being detained. Then. Themistocles, with his colleagues now in Sparta, felt it prudent to finally have an audience with the Spartan ephors. Themistocles then delivered a speech, revealing to the Spartans their current situation. He finished the speech by saying, quote, In the future, if the Spartans or their allies have any communication to make, they must deal with us, as with men who are capable of deciding their own and Greece's interests. End quote. Essentially, he was formally proclaiming Athens to be an equal peer with Sparta. The irked Spartans, without any leverage, insisted that they had meant well and still believed that the best defense of Greece was at the Isthmus. Regardless, the ambassadors for both returned home freely, and the two remained allies, though tenuously. Although they showed outward grace, the Spartans held secret annoyance. Sparta was forced to accept all of these happenings in Athens because realistically there was nothing that they could do about it. However, this episode may be seen as the beginning of the Spartan mistrust of Themistocles, which would return to haunt him in the future. Back at Athens, now that the fortifications had been made secure, the most pressing problem was to build living quarters for the citizens and to restore such buildings as were essential to the carrying on of public business. And so they begin to reconstruct the buildings around the Agora and in the rest of the city below the Acropolis. The temples of the Acropolis had also been destroyed, but as we mentioned last episode, the Greek forces had sworn the so-called Oath of Plataea not to rebuild the sanctuaries violated by the Persians, but to leave them in ruins as a reminder of their brutality until the Persian threat was eliminated once and for all. The old temple of Athena Polius, which housed the sacred image of the goddess, was probably brought back into immediate use by some sort of temporary improvisation. But no attempt was made to restore the building to its previous form nor to replace the sculptures which had been shattered in the collapse of the temple. The Athenians incorporated many of the unfinished pieces of the temple, those being unfluted column drums, triglyphs, metopes, and so forth, into a northern wall that served as a prominent war memorial that can still be seen today. The devastated site was then cleared of debris. Broken statues and cold objects were buried ceremoniously into several deeply dug pits on the hill that later served as artificial filling to raise the level of the Acropolis. This preservation in the ground allowed them to be found by archaeologists. As we discussed in episode 17, this Persian debris, as it's been called, is the richest archaeological deposit 
excavated on the Acropolis, and thus it preserved for posterity a vivid picture of one of the finest phases of Athenian art. The Great Temple of Athena, which had begun after Marathon and had been destroyed before it was completed, was not continued. Not until peace had been made with Persia did Athena receive her new home, when the Parthenon arose on the foundations, which were intended for a building of wholly different proportions. With the Athenian Agora and city receiving a facelift, Themistocles then turned to furthering his naval policy. He persuaded the Athenians to complete the fortifications of Piraeus, which had begun three years earlier, after the discovery of the silver mines, during his archonship. Thucydides reports that only about half the desired height of the walls had been finished, but Themistocles at this point made them bigger. He wanted them so large enough and so thick enough that they might be adequately defended by only a small garrison, so that more soldiers would be freed for service in the fleet. Plutarch writes that when the Athenians completed their wall, Themistocles had, quote, fastened the city of Athens to the Piraeus and the land to the sea, end quote. Athens' naval power was based upon growing naval commerce. This in turn depended upon the increase of Attic industries, and so Themistocles introduced tax breaks for merchants and artisans in order to attract both people and trade to the city to make Athens a great mercantile center once again. And so many metoikoi, or medics, those being non-citizen residents, began to flock to Athens, or the Piraeus. He also instructed the Athenians to build 20 triremes per year, in order to ensure that their dominance in naval matters continued. The expense of which, over time, would not be covered by the state, but by the wealthiest citizens of Athens. There will be more on this in a future episode. Plutarch also reports that over the winter of 479-478 BC, Themistocles also secretly proposed to destroy the beached ships of the other allied navies in order to ensure complete Athenian naval dominance, but was overruled by Aristides, Chimon, more on him shortly, and the rest of the leading conservative pro-Spartan Athenian politicians. Even though Leotokides sailed away with his Peloponnesian allies and left the Athenians and Xanthippus to continue on the Persian counterattack in the northern Aegean, there was still a strong faction at Sparta that wanted to exert power and influence throughout Greece and abroad. And so in 478 BC, still operating under the terms of the Hellenic League, the Greeks sent out a fleet composed of 20 Peloponnesian and 30 Athenian ships under the overall command of Pausanias, to Cyprus, where they subdued most of the island. It was essentially a raid to gather as much booty as possible from the Persian garrisons on the island, and there is no indication that the Greeks attempted to take possession of Cyprus. However, their preemptive attack on the island also stopped any hope of the Persians using it as a naval base for their own counterattack on the southern Aegean. Shortly thereafter, the Greek fleet sailed to Byzantium, a port city at the European entrance of the Black Sea, which they besieged and then captured. Control of both Sestos and Byzantium gave the Greeks command of the straits between Europe and Asia, which allowed them access to the merchant trade route of the Black Sea. Essentially, their expeditions against Cyprus and Byzantium consolidated the victories that they had the previous year while strengthening the control that the Greek fleet had throughout the Aegean, 
However, this would be the last joint effort between Athens and Sparta against the Persian threat. The aftermath of the siege proved troublesome for Pausanias and the Spartans. The details are murky, but it seems that his talents as a politician were not as equal to his talents as a commander. And so he made many enemies amongst the Greeks by behaving in an arrogant and overbearing manner and treating the non-Spartans as underlings, which was always a common Spartan problem when they commanded over others. Their regimented training in Sparta apparently left them ill-prepared to operate humanely and effectively once they had escaped from the constraints imposed by their way of life at home. Because of this, the Spartans recalled Pausanias for an investigation into the many allegations that were thrown his way, the validity of many of which are hard to ascertain. Most Greeks were appalled with his lack of morals, so much so that they brought charges against him for acting as a Persian satrap, as well as for committing treason. Although Pausanias would argue that they had escaped, he was alleged to have released some of the prisoners of war from Byzantium, who were friends and relations of the king of Persia, possibly having cut a deal with the Persians. Pausanias also started to adopt Persian customs and dressed like a Persian aristocrat. And so they alleged that he'd become caught up in Persian wealth and luxury. And they said that he even kept a personal bodyguard of Medes and Egyptians. If all of this is true, his conduct was more aligned with that of a despot than of a general. Although he was acquitted on the heaviest charges of Medism, he was censored for his private acts of oppression. Pausanias may have been guilty of treason, or he may have not, but what is certain is that he alienated the Greeks serving under him, particularly the Ionians, who had only recently been freed from the Persian king and were especially sensitive to the trappings of despotism. The result was that with his reputation and gravitas now being tarnished, he would not be sent out again as commander. Instead, Pausanias returned to Byzantium as a private citizen, and the Spartans then tried to send out Dorcas as his replacement. But the Greek fleet at Byzantium didn't want another Spartan as their commander, and so they sent him back to Sparta, most likely at the urging of the Athenians, who no doubt offered the hubris of Pausanias as pretext for Spartan incompetence at sea. Dorcas's return to Sparta marked the end of Sparta's official active involvement in the offensive war against Persia. Inevitably, the Spartans were divided about this turn of events. To some, no doubt, that being the conservative faction, the containment of Persia without undue Spartan exertion was an appealing prospect, as they thought that the Athenians were competent enough to handle it themselves. Throughout their history, the underlying threat of a helot rebellion inhibited Spartan ambitions in the east. Others, however, were stung by the blow to Spartan prestige and found the Athenians' growing power ominous and unsettling. The disgraced Spartans, though, gave up leadership because according to Thucydides, quote, the Spartans were afraid any other commanders that they sent abroad would become corrupted as Pausanias had been, and also, they wished to rid themselves of the burden of fighting the Persians, and thought that the Athenians were quite able to exercise leadership, and were currently friendly allies with them. End quote. And so, the transfer of leadership appeared to be very amicable with Sparta, 
who, at least according to Thucydides, was willing to pass over the burdensome task to Athens so that they could fall back to the Peloponnesus, meaning that the conservative faction had won out this time. In Athens, on the other hand, there was little cause for ambivalence, because a shortage of fertile land made the Athenian economy dependent on grain from the Black Sea region, most notably modern-day Ukraine. Safeguarding the Hellespont and the northern Aegean from Persia was of supreme importance. In addition, the Athenians enjoyed a powerful sentimental attachment to their cousins, the Ionian Greeks, and abandoning them to Persian rule would have both felt bad and looked bad. Athens, moreover, had seen its territory ravaged by the Persians, and experienced the Spartans had been spared. For all of these reasons, the Athenians considered it in their best interest, and why many felt that they were the ideal candidate to assume leadership of the naval forces against Persia. At that time, though, the conservative Aristides, not Xanthippus, was in command of the Athenian fleet, for a reason that is not stated, and he was hesitant to be the overall leader, thinking that the allies might ditch them if the Spartans decided to come back. So Uliades, the commander of the Samian navy, sailed his ship against the Spartan flagship and rammed it, effectively ending their friendly relations with them. At this point, the Athenians accepted the Ionian invitation to become hegemon. But the big question was, what should Athens become the hegemon of? Leadership over the Hellenic League had little to offer the Athenians. The annual election for hegemon would give little security to the Athenians and was not a fair basis for their commitment of so many ships and men. In addition, the Peloponnesians, with their votes, would still have influence in deciding policy, even though they had withdrawn from the war effort, and the Ionian mainlanders were still excluded from membership. Consequently, the obvious solution was the establishment of something entirely different. So in the winter of 478-477 BC, some of the Greeks formed what modern scholars call the Delian League, because the meeting was held in the middle of the Aegean, on the island of Delos. They came up with a constitution, and whereas the goals and aims of the Peloponnesian League had never been defined, those of the Delian League were stated clearly. Members would avenge the Persian attacks on Greece and collect a booty to pay for damage. Thucydides writes that, quote, A pretext for the alliance was to take revenge for their losses by devastating the Persian king's territory. End quote. However, his choice of the word for pretext, that being proschema, implies very strongly that one of the stated aims, vengeance, was not the genuine aim. The Greek word proschema has unpleasant connotations of falsehood and is normally used as a cloak for real motives or intentions. Various views have been expressed to the reason why Thucydides used this word. One is that Thucydides from the outset believed that the Athenians deliberately intended to impose their power on their Delian League allies. Such a viewpoint either credits the Athenians with remarkable and cynical foresight or criticizes Thucydides for using hindsight in imputing such motives to the Athenians. 
Another view is that the Athenians' real aim was simply and solely to gain leadership itself, and the offensive naval war against the Persians was a good pretext for this. In this way, the Athenians' status as one of the two superpowers in Greece would be confirmed and increased by being the hegemon of a strong naval league. The example of Sparta's dominant influence in Greek affairs, owing to their leadership of the powerful Peloponnesian League, was a great incentive to the Athenians to create something similar, in which they could invest their newly acquired military strength and prestige. Whatever Athens' true aim, the League's primary stated motive was to defend Greek, mainly Ionian, freedom. Both Aristotle and Plutarch then mention an event not recorded in Thucydides. Aristides had all the representatives for their polis agree to have a common foreign policy, meaning the same friends and enemies, and to swear an oath by dropping chunks of iron bars into the sea. It has been interpreted that the league was supposed to last until those chunks of iron floated to the surface, a task which was impossible. So essentially, they meant for it to last forever. Another interpretation is that this was meant to symbolize death or exile to anyone who broke the oath. Regardless, membership was divided into zones. 20 polis from the islands, 36 from Ionia, 35 from the Hellespontine region, 24 from Caria, and 33 from Thrace, to make a total of 148. Not coincidentally, the members were from areas most exposed to Persian attacks. The Delian League was much bigger than the Peloponnesian League, but most of its members were tiny. Some of the biggest and strongest, besides Athens, were Samos, Chios, Lesbos, and Miletus. There were, however, no members from the Peloponnesus. Essentially, all members of the Hellenic League that assembled to fight the Persians now were divided between the Peloponnesian and Delian Leagues, dividing up on the basis of their alliance to either Athens or Sparta. All three leagues were separate and distinct entities, though. Since the Delian League was a naval league, it cost more money to maintain than a hoplite-based league, for example, so they needed to maintain a treasury for the cost of ships and other war expenses. This treasury was held at the Sanctuary of Apollo on the island of Delos. In view of the personality problems that had brought down Pausanias, and with him, Spartan naval leadership, it was particularly fortunate for the Athenians that they had at their disposal a man as famous for his integrity and likable nature as Aristides. It was he who was charged with determining how much foros, or contribution, each state was required to contribute by means of ships and a crew to row them, or simply just money. It was essential at the beginning of this great enterprise that there was no perceived unfairness in the assessment of each ally's contribution. Plutarch writes in his Life of Aristides, quote, Wanting the burden on each city to be moderate, they asked the Athenians for Aristides' help and instructed him to consider the land and income of each city and to fix the contributions according to the resources of each. End quote. His assessment was universally accepted as equitable and continued as the basis of taxation for the greater part of the League's duration. 
Some of the larger states, such as Lesbos, Samos, Chios, Naxos, and Thassos, chose to make their contributions in ships, but most preferred to pay money directly to the Temple of Apollo at Delos. As time passed on, those states stopped sending ships and the foroi became only money, since most polis didn't maintain a fleet any longer. It was periodically revised, meaning it increased, and the Athenians used this money how they deemed fit. Those in charge of the money were the ten Hellenotamii, or treasurers of the Greeks. And these officials were always an Athenian citizen, selected by and responsible to the Athenian demos. Furthermore, all naval campaigns were always to be led by an Athenian general. The Allies wanted this, though, because it forced the Athenians to the League, as they feared that the Athenians might abandon them, and they'd be forced to deal with the Persians alone. Thucydides reports that the first total yearly assessment was set at 460 talents. This figure has caused problems, though, as it appears to be way too high. After the Athenians moved the League treasury to Athens, more on this in a future episode, and devoted one sixtieth of each ally's foros to Athena, these offerings were recorded on stone, the fragments of which are referred to as the Athenian tribute lists by modern historians. Although these lists are incomplete, scholars confidently accepted the figure of 430 talents as the collection right before the Peloponnesian War, when membership of the League had increased, and when the number of those who had converted from supplying ships to paying foros had risen dramatically. Therefore, a figure of 460 seems unlikely right from the beginning. One solution is that the ship suppliers were assessed in a foros equivalence. Possibly one ship was the equivalent of one talent, and therefore the 460 talents included cash, ships, and men. Certainly, when the ship suppliers wished to convert to foros paying status, a cash equivalency was worked out then. It may even have been the case that Athens's naval contribution to the new league was assessed in a foros equivalency and included in the original sum of 460 talents. If this represented a third or more, then the Allies' original contribution would have been much smaller at first than it would be later, and thus would represent a tightening of the screws, so to speak, by the Athenians. Many problems similar to those surrounding the financial arrangements still exist owing to the lack of detail in Thucydides' account of the League. One of the most important, as well as the most problematic, characteristics of the Delian League concerns the structure by which the Athenians and its allies reached their decisions about policy. It's not explicitly stated by any of the sources and therefore must be inferred. There's no doubt that decisions were made by representatives of each polis, but in what capacity? The choice lay between either a unicameral or a bicameral structure. In a unicameral structure, every member, including the hegemon, has only one vote in a single chamber with a vote of a simple majority deciding policy. In this structure, the large number of votes, more than 150, enabled Athens to control the proceedings of the council because their political clout could influence the smaller states to their will and thus could overcome the weight of any opposition the larger states could offer. In a bicameral structure, there are two chambers, 
consisting of the hegemon in one chamber and the rest of the allies in the other. Each chamber is constitutionally equal in power to each other, and therefore a policy is only authorized when both chambers vote in favor. If one chamber opposes the proposed policy, then the policy is rejected. In this structure, the Allies' decisions would be reached by a majority verdict within their chamber, and then could be accepted or rejected by the Athenians in theirs, and vice versa. Thucydides writes, quote, Delos was their treasury, and it was at the sanctuary there that their meetings were held. They were leaders of the Allies, who at first were independent, and took counsel in meetings open to all. End quote. The who here is crucial. In the original Greek, the who is a participle agreeing with the allies, and thus this seems to be evidence that the allies met separately from the hegemon to make their decisions, thereby confirming the league as bicameral. Furthermore, Diodorus writes, quote, Aristides advised all the allies, who were holding a general meeting, to choose Delos as their common treasury, to deposit there all the money they collected. End quote. This strongly suggests that the Allies were having their own meeting, and that Aristides, whether in an official or private capacity, was an outsider, offering advice to their deliberations. And so we can confidently, though not definitively, say that the Delian League was bicameral. The Athenians and their allies, though, were hardly likely to have made their judgment about the structure of their new league in a political vacuum. There were in Greece three other leagues, whose success or failure would probably have played an influential role in the preliminary discussions leading up to the formation of the Delian League. There was the unicameral Ionian League, which operated during the Ionian Revolt, and of which many of the new Delian League allies had been members. The lack of decisive and authoritative leadership in this league led to disastrous disunity at the Battle of Laude and the collapse of the revolt. There was also the unicameral Hellenic League, which was successful in achieving its aim of saving Greece from Persia, but there had been many serious, potentially destructive disagreements over policy within the league, with repeated Athenian threats to desert. The third league was the bicameral Peloponnesian League, with Sparta as its hegemon. This league was the backbone of the Spartan success in Greek affairs, and was the dominant element in gaining Sparta, the hegemony of the Hellenic League. And so a bicameral league would have been attractive not only to the Athenians, with the success of the Spartans in the Peloponnesian League before them, but also to the Ionians, whose previous hopes of liberty failed in a unicameral league. Furthermore, there are still many questions we cannot answer. For example, how often were these meetings held, and what were the topics of discussion? Presumably, though, there was at the very least a general meeting once a year, before the beginning of the sailing season, to decide upon the strategy for the forthcoming campaign season. There are no problems with the League early on, however, because each polis maintained local autonomy. The Allies knew that without Athenian help, they would once again become the mere fringe of the Persian Empire, and so they acquiesced to Athens' wishes. 
That would change later in the century, when the League ultimately turned into an Athenian arche, or empire. Thucydides and Diodorus are the two major sources for why the League changed from a free association of polis into an Athenian imperial democracy after the polis began revolting. Diodorus says that the Athenians ruled with arrogance and violence, blaming the revolts on their behavior. Thucydides says that the principal causes of revolt were because of hardships brought on by constant tribute. The Athenians became the entire army and navy eventually, because the allies decided to only chip in money, and not soldiers or ships, because it was the easier option as they no longer had to take part in the dangerous campaigning and the added expense of maintaining their ships. And so they played right into the hands of the Athenians, who took the money and built Athenian ships, increasing their navy and power at the expense of the others. And when those cities revolted, they were unprepared and short of experience in war. By the Peloponnesian War, only Chios and Lesbos still had their own navy, Just to give you an idea of what we're dealing with, 700 magistrates were sent out yearly to oversee the collection of tribute, being supported by fleets and garrisons of Athenian troops and sailors. Of course, this was the situation later on. But following the creation of the Delian League, there were two options available to the Athenians in foreign policy. They could use their new military power and prestige, either to dominate Greece or to wage an offensive war against Persia. This was the key issue that split the political factions in Athens. It should be noted, though, that political parties, in the modern sense, did not exist in ancient Greece. Instead, political leaders formed informal circles of friends and followers to support their ambitions. Disputes amongst these ambitious leaders often stemmed more from competition for election to the highest public offices and influence than from disagreements over pure matters of policy. But in this period, it just so happened that those factional divides actually did correspond to a disagreement over foreign policy. In modern politics, it is customary to refer to those who contend for influence over or control of foreign policy as hawks and doves, And so we will use these two terms as unofficial names for the two Athenian political factions. The Hawks believed that the Persians had been beaten, and having retreated back eastward, they would no longer offer any serious direct threat to mainland Greece and Athens. The main danger to Athens in the future would come from Sparta and the Peloponnese. Recent history had revealed to them Sparta's feelings towards the Athenians. Cleomenes had intervened four times in Athenian internal affairs. There had been a constant underlying friction between the Spartans and the Athenians in the Persian War. They even attempted to stop Athens from rebuilding their defensive walls, as we previously mentioned. The Spartans' hostile attitude to the Athenians was motivated by a fear of Athens' military strength. The majority of Spartans would never accept the existence of Athens as a new, equal and independent power, and so the Hawks believed that Sparta eventually would attack Athens to regain the hegemony of Greece by force. Therefore, the policy of the Hawks was to quickly remove the Persians from Greek territory and prepare for the inevitable conflict with Sparta. The Athenian doves believed in the policy of dual hegemony, 
or joint leadership of Greece. They argued that the Athenians and Spartans had different spheres of influence. Athens, a sea power operating in the Aegean, and the Spartans, a land power operating in the Peloponnese. And therefore, there was no need for a clash. The Persian War had shown that the two superpowers in general could work together, and they believed that the Panhellenic spirit could be continued in peacetime. The goodwill that had been engendered in the Persian War would ensure that any future problems could be resolved amicably. The real enemy had to be the Persians, who had inflicted such suffering and casualties upon the Greeks. Therefore, the policy of the Doves was to maintain peaceful relations with the Spartans and to wage war on the Persians. There is little doubt that Themistocles was the leader of the Athenian Hawks. He had been the most successful and influential politician in the decade prior to the Persian War and transformed Athens into a naval superpower. Thanks to Themistocles, the common man now by means of rowing the fleet could gain glory, a movement which spearheaded a greater democratization of the state. Yet little is heard of Themistocles until the end of the decade, the reason of which we will cover later in this episode. Surely, Themistocles became the dominant politician in Athens once again, but he ran into trouble for being too much of a maverick. He was a nobleman, but wasn't from the center of the aristocracy, and his flamboyancy troubled his aristocratic rivals, because he was not averse to basking in the glory that he had won. He had repaired his relationships with those men who he was able to get ostracized for meddling in his shipbuilding efforts, but were recalled when the Persians invaded Greece, like Aristides and Xanthippus. But a new generation of conservative politicians began to worry for their future prospects, with Themistocles being the most powerful man in Athens. And so, in order to suppress him, it seems that the aristocracy wouldn't allow Themistocles to lead any more expeditions, and thus gain more glory than he already had. One would think that Xanthippus, the hero of Mycale and Sestos, would become the leader of the Athenian doves and would lead all naval expeditions after the wars. But alas, that wasn't meant to be, as he died just a few years later after the war, in 475 BC, at the age of 50. His legacy, though, would be built upon by his infamous son, Pericles. There will be much, much more on him later, and in future episodes. Anyways, the task of leading the Athenian navy and the doves fell to Chimon, the son of Miltiades. He was born around 510 BC, and his mother was Hegesipyle, the daughter of the king of Thrace. Some accounts say that Chimon and his half-sister, Elpeniki, were married to each other until they were forced to get a divorce so that she could be given as a bride to Callias, one of the richest men in Athens, who agreed to pay Miltiades' fine, as we discussed in episode 36. Greek law did allow marriage between a brother and a sister if they had different mothers, which was the case here. So it is possible that this occurred, but it also could have been later slander against Chimon by his political enemies. Anyways, as a young man, he distinguished himself by his bravery during the Battle of Salamis and was taken under the wing by Aristides. He also supported Sparta. In fact, he was their proxenos at Athens, and he regularly spoke on the virtues of their system, promoting cooperation with them. 
He was known for registering his opposition to the proposals in the Ecclesia by saying, quote, but that is not what the Spartans would do, end quote. His son was even named Lacedaemonius, which literally means the Spartan. Themistocles, on the other hand, was hostile to Sparta and attempted to rouse anti-Spartan feelings in Athens whenever he could. But Athens' friendship with Sparta was the cornerstone of Cimon's foreign policy, as this allowed the Athenians to direct their full military might against the Persians. This policy, though, was of great benefit in promoting Cimon's career. Because his campaigns against the Persians in the east were widely successful, more on that shortly, he made a profit from booty and became a popular commander. Plutarch writes, quote, Indeed, no man did more than Cimon to humble and insult the pride of the great king himself. He did not relax his pursuit of the Persians from Greece, but pressed hard on their heels until Asia, from Ionia to Pamphylia, was totally emptied of all Persian soldiers. End quote. It is hardly surprising that nearly a decade of continuous military glory for Cimon gave Themistocles and his anti-Spartan policies little chance of success in the decades of the 470s BC. Cimon, for his part though, possessed personable skills needed for successful democratic politics. Since generals were the leading political figures in Athens, they had to be elected every year, and he was elected as one of the ten strategoi for a 17-year stretch from 479 to 462 BC. All of Cimon's influence, though, was unofficial, but the other nine generals tended to follow him. It probably helped that he had married Isodike, the granddaughter of Megacles, and thus married into the powerful family of the Alcmeonidae. And so, because the pro-Spartan Cimon was the dominant politician in the early years of the Athenian Empire, Sparta didn't do anything to check Athens' rise to power. Aristotle describes this reign of Cimon as the period of the Areopagite constitution in Athens, because the old Areopagus regained unofficial but real power. It was a moderate democracy. Scholars still argue over the specifics, but it seems that the Areopagus regained the oversight of the magistracies. It also took more and more power away from the boule, although not by any legal changes, but through unofficial acceptance by the people, because it was the aristocrats who provided money for the poor to stay alive after they had fled Attica during the war. The success of the Delian League against the Persians was extraordinary. All dates for these skirmishes are insecure and are derived mainly from Thucydides' account. The first recorded action of the Delian League was aimed at the Persian-occupied city of Aeon, which sat on the mouth of the Strymon River in Thrace. In addition to commanding a very important position in Thrace, Aeon also was rich in mineral wealth, particularly silver, offered excellent trading possibilities, and even more importantly, had abundant supplies of timber for the League's fleet. And so, in 477 BC, Cimon led the fleet northward and managed to defeat the Persian general named Bogase in charge of the garrison there. The Persians then retreated into the city and were placed under siege, but it didn't last very long because Cimon quickly expelled all Thracian collaborators from the region in order to starve the Persians into submission. 
Bogues was offered terms upon which he might be allowed to evacuate the city and return to Asia, but he refused, not wanting to be thought of as a coward by Xerxes, and so he resisted to the very end. When the food in Aeon ran out, Bogues lit a great funeral pyre. He then slew his wife and children, his concubines and his slaves, and hurled them all into the fire. He took all of his gold and silver to the top of the wall and flung it into the waters of the Strymon, and then he leapt himself into the flames. And with this, Cimon was easily then able to capture the city, and then he enslaved all of the Persians who had managed to survive the siege. In doing so, he was able to expel the Persians entirely from Thrace and secure Aeon and all of its rich mineral wealth and lumber for Athens. He then attempted to take Doriscus, which commanded the crossing of the Hebrus River, but was unsuccessful, and so it still remained in Persian hands. We don't know how it happened, but at some point, it would pass over into Thracian hands. Then, from 476 to 475 BC, Cimon led a force against Skiros, a rocky island to the east of Euboea, which was not inhabited by civilized Greeks but instead Dilopian pirates, who made their living by terrorizing ships in the northern Aegean. The Greeks crushed them and enslaved the survivors, and according to Plutarch, the Athenians took control of the island and established a clerugi there. The clerugs were generally chosen by the government from among the Zugatai class of hoplite soldiers, and so they filled a double function. They provided an outlet for disaffected and potentially dangerous Athenian citizens, and they were strategically located to operate as military garrisons that would discourage rebellion from Athens. While on Skiros, Cimon also organized a search for the bones of Theseus, who according to Greek tradition had died there. He somehow managed to find them, or at least he claimed he did, and brought them back to Athens in response to a Delphic oracle that commanded them to retrieve his remains and honor them as sacred relics. His triumphant announcement that he had managed to find the king's remains, albeit true or not, won him enormous popularity in Athens. To celebrate this achievement, three Hermai statues were erected around Athens. Theseus became the object of a thriving hero cult, and from then on, Cimon made a point of boasting of his connection to him whenever possible. With this campaign, the Greeks liberated the sea, and we won't hear about piracy in the Aegean until the Roman period. Unlike the campaign against Ion, this was not directed against the Persians, and shows that even at this early stage, there was flexibility, at least on the part of the Athenians, in the League's aims. The League was made up of islands and coastal towns in the Aegean, and their economies were mainly dependent upon trade. The removal of piracy resulted in the free flow of trade and increased prosperity, something that would have been greatly welcomed by the Allies, but it would also have been especially valuable to the Athenians, because the Piraeus was developing into the major trading center in the eastern Mediterranean. In addition, Skyros was ideally situated on the grain route from the Hellespont to Athens. Thus, with the removal of both the Persians from Thrace and the troublesome pirates of Skyros, the route to the Hellespont was now clear of any obstacles for Athenian merchant ships. In 473 BC, 
The third recorded action of the Delian League took place against Karistos, a Greek polis that was situated on the southern end of the strategically important island of Euboea. Thucydides writes, quote, War arose between the Athenians and the Karistians, who were not supported by the other Eubians, and in time, a settlement was made by agreement. End quote. Once again, as in the Skiros affair, the Delian League had conducted a campaign against fellow Greeks. Thucydides does not explicitly state the reason for the attack, but his words make it seem that the Karistians were not well liked by the other Eubians. They had surrendered willingly to the Persians after Artemisium, instead of fleeing their homeland like the rest had done. Furthermore, Karistos was a coastal town and would have been enjoying all the political and commercial benefits of freedom from Persia and the removal of the pirates. However, unlike the other Euboean cities and the other League allies, it was gaining all of these advantages brought about by the League without contributing to the League's income. And so, it is reasonable to assume that the terms on which Karistos surrendered were to become a Foros-paying member of the League. This incident again shows how Athens was willing to go beyond the League's original aims, especially when the action benefited themselves. Not coincidentally, Karistos was a key city on the vital grain route from the Hellespont. Meanwhile, the situation at Sparta reveals just how worried some had become over the strength that the Athenians were flexing with the Delian League. Essentially, what we see here is the presence of political factions in Sparta as well, that vied with each other for control of Spartan foreign policy. The Spartan hawks, if you will, resented the Athenian success in the Persian War, but of much greater concern was their fear of Athens' growing power and confidence. Fundamentally, they refused to accept Athens as an equal, independent superpower. They believed that the only guarantee of safety for Sparta was to possess the sole hegemony of Greece, by land and by sea. The Spartan doves, on the other hand, accepted the limitations on their foreign policy in Greece. They were well aware of the constant threat that the Helots posed, and that a dynamic foreign policy would expose the Spartans to excessive risk. If they were to overstretch themselves, there was every danger that they would suffer a serious defeat, which would inevitably provoke a helot revolt. A successful helot revolt would undermine the whole basis of Spartan power and lead to its collapse. Therefore, the policy of the Spartan doves was twofold. First, the Spartans must maintain their supremacy in the Peloponnese as this guaranteed their status as an influential superpower in Greek affairs. Second, they had to accept the policy of dual hegemony, meaning the sharing of leadership of Greece with the Athenians. Athens' sea power and control of the Aegean were vital for the liberty of Greece and Sparta. If the Athenians were crushed and the Delian League broke up, there would be a power vacuum in the Aegean which Sparta, as a traditional land power, would find very difficult to fill. The obvious inheritor, then, of the Athenians' position in the Aegean would be Persia, whose hopes of conquering Greece would then be greatly improved, since Greece would have been severely weakened by the loss of the Athenians' fleet. So basically, the Spartan doves believed that in order to keep Persia at bay, they needed to maintain and support an amicable relationship with the Athenians. 
it appears that there may have been a third foreign policy in play at Sparta as well that essentially was a less ambitious version of the policy of the Hawks. The abandonment of the war at sea against Persia, but the extension of Spartan power on land in central and northern Greece, especially Boeotia and Thessaly. The rewards for gaining control of Thessaly were particularly attractive. First, it was wealthy and fertile. Secondly, its cavalry was the best in Greece. Third, it was strategically well-positioned for access to Thrace, and even more importantly, to the Hellespont, through which the Athenian grain ships, so vital for the feeding of the Athenian population, had to sail. And finally, it had the presidency of and controlled the Amphictonic League, a religious council whose function was to run the Delphic Sanctuary, but possessed much political influence throughout Greece. The Spartans had already attempted to have the Medizing states of Thessaly, Boeotia, and Argos expelled as members of the Amphiectonic League in order to guarantee Spartan domination of the League, but they were thwarted by Themistocles, who represented Athens, and the proposal was thrown out. Then, in 476 BC, the Spartan king Leotokides, the victor of Mycale, led an expedition to Thessaly in an attempt to punish the Aloidae for their collaboration with the Persians. But he withdrew, and the circumstances around it were murky, so much so that when he returned to Sparta, he was tried for bribery, either because he was actually bribed, or because he knew that he would be found guilty regardless. He fled to the temple of Athena in Tegea, and was sentenced to exile in Abstentia. He would die less than a decade later, while still in exile. His son Zeuxodamus had passed away already, and so Zeuxodamus' son, and Leotokides' grandson, named Archidamus II, became the next Eurypontid king of Sparta, ruling from 476 to 427 BC. Needless to say, he will have a hand in many of the events in the 5th century BC. This trial and expulsion of a Spartan king was only accented by a debate in the Gerosia in 475 BC, recorded by Diodorus, that reveals the deepening of the Spartan division of opinion over Athens that we discussed earlier. Diodorus writes, quote, The Spartans, having let slip the leadership of the sea for no good reason, were moved to anger, having convened the Gerosia. They discussed about making a war on the Athenians. In the same way, when a general assembly was convened, the younger men and a majority of the others were keen to recover the leadership. End quote. It is clear then that a large faction of the Spartans were eager to make war upon Athens in order to regain naval hegemony. It was the speech of a certain elder named Hetomeridas who opposed this and thus persuaded both the Gerosia and the people that it was not in Sparta's best interest to lay claim to the sea. He presumably realized that Sparta, owing to its unique situation with the Helots, and its natural inclination towards land warfare, could not easily and safely adapt to becoming a successful sea power. Moreover, it was probably argued that the Persians were still a danger to Greece, and the Athenians were doing a fine job by gradually removing them as a threat. The pro-Spartan Chimon was the dominant politician in Athens, and the Athenians were treating their Delian League allies fairly. 
And so it seems that by 475 BC, the aggressive foreign policy of the Spartan Hawks had been discredited by the disgrace of its two most powerful advocates, Pausanias and Leotokites, which allowed the Doves to gain the initiative. At some point in the late 470s BC, Pausanias was recalled to Sparta once again, from Byzantium. On his arrival, the ephors had him imprisoned, as charges had finally been brought forward of treason. He was later released, as nobody had enough evidence to convict him, even though some helots gave evidence that he offered them their freedom if they joined him in revolt, in converting the Spartan state into a true monarchy, with him at the helm. However, unbeknownst to him, a former lover of his, who he supposedly had used to deliver treacherous letters to and from Xerxes, decided to come forth and provide the written evidence to the Spartan ephors. Thucydides actually quotes the supposed text, but it is difficult to see how the letters would have been available to him or any other Greek. Anyways, according to Thucydides, Pausanias wished to bring Sparta and the rest of Greece under Persian control. In return, he wished to marry the king's daughter and be made the satrap over all of the Greeks. Before he was apprehended once again, however, Pausanias was tipped off about the letter, and so he escaped to the temple of Athena, where he sought sanctuary. Enraged at his treachery and their inability to drag him out, they walled up his only way in and out of the temple, leaving their former disgraced commander to starve. When he was on the brink of death from starvation, Pausanias was carried out onto the street, where he soon died afterwards, so that his death would not pollute the temple. It seems clear that towards the end of the 470s BC, Themistocles had begun to accrue many political enemies. Plutarch writes that he had grown arrogant due to his prestige and power, which in turn led many of his fellow citizens to grow jealous. His hubris was on clear display when he commissioned a sanctuary of Artemis with the epithet Aristobule, meaning of good counsel, near his home a blatant reference to his own role in delivering Greece from the Persian invasion. The poet Timocrian of Rhodes, who composed slanderous drinking songs against him, was among his most eloquent enemies. Throughout the decade, Themistocles continued to pursue his anti-Spartan policies by stirring up trouble for Sparta in the Peloponnese. The Spartans' fear of and hostilities towards him led them to back his political enemy Cimon. Plutarch writes, quote, Cimon's position was strengthened by the support of the Spartans, as they now became bitter enemies of Themistocles. End quote. Finally, after the treason and disgrace of their general Pausanias, the Spartans then tried to implicate Themistocles as an accomplice in this plot and sent word to Athens of his supposed involvement. And so, in 473 BC, he was summoned to answer these accusations. Sensing enemies everywhere and fearing an unfair trial, Themistocles fled to Argos. A year later in 472 BC, however, in Abstentia, he was acquitted on the charge of Medism, because according to Diodorus and Thucydides, nobody really believed Sparta's story. It's also in 472 BC that we see the first appearance of Pericles on the historical record. He was the son of Xanthippus and Agoristi, who was the niece of Cleisthenes, 
and thus he was a member of the powerful and controversial noble family of the Alcmeonidae. According to Plutarch, a few nights before Pericles' birth, Agoristi dreamed that she would bear a lion. One interpretation of the dream treats the lion as a traditional symbol of greatness, but the story may also allude to the fact that Pericles had an unusually large head. In fact, later he would become a popular target of contemporary comedians who called him Squillhead. A squill is a type of large onion. And so, Plutarch claims it was because of this reason that Pericles always made sure to depict himself wearing a helmet. Anyways, his early years were quiet. The introverted young Pericles avoided public appearances, instead preferring to devote his time to his studies, and his family's nobility and wealth allowed him to fully pursue his inclination towards education. If you recall from episode 36... The 23-year-old Pericles first entered the public scene when he was the Choregos of Aeschylus's infamous play The Persians. Some scholars have argued that Pericles' selection of this play, which presents a nostalgic picture of the role Themistocles played in the famous victory at Salamis, shows that the young politician was supporting Themistocles against his political opponent Cimon. Although his father and Themistocles seem to have been rivals, Pericles' politics aligned more with that of the popular Themistocles than with his own father. If Pericles was, in fact, throwing his support covertly behind Themistocles, it wasn't successful though, because Themistocles' popularity had been on the wane since the end of the wars, and with his current accusations, the following year, in 471 BC, he was formally ostracized from Athens. As we mentioned in episode 36, about 180 ostraca have been found in excavations of the Athenian Agora, with Themistocles' name inscribed upon them. Plutarch writes that he was ostracized not because he had done anything wrong. He writes, quote, It was not a penalty, but a way of pacifying and alleviating that jealousy which delights to humble the eminent, breathing out its malice into this disenfranchisement. End quote. There was still a very strong Panhellenic feeling in Athens following the Persian War, and most of the Athenians were not convinced of the Spartan danger. In addition, the promise of wealth accruing from the Delian League was far more attractive than a difficult and dangerous war against Sparta. So it seems that his ostracism was a byproduct of his hawkish foreign policy that was beginning to threaten peaceful relations between the two states. Themistocles, though, wouldn't go down quietly. While in exile, he began traveling throughout the Peloponnese to stir up anti-Spartan sentiment. As we mentioned, he first went to Sparta's arch-nemesis, Argos, in 472 BC. If you recall from episode 35, Argos had suffered a resounding defeat to the Spartans at Sepia prior to the Persian Wars. It was this loss of manpower that the Argives gave as their reason for neutrality in the Persian War, although there was no way that they would have ever served under Spartan leadership. Well, according to Herodotus, the ruling aristocrats suffered the most in the slaughter at Sepia, and the government of Argos passed in the hands of douloi, or slaves. This cannot literally be true, but it seems possible that some important families, formerly on the fringes of power, took over the government 
and that douloi is a term of political abuse used by the aristocratic survivors and their descendants against them. These new families had a liberalizing effect on the Argive constitution, and thanks to Themistocles, who the Argives welcomed openly to piss off the Spartans, he urged them into a moderate democracy, an abomination to the oligarchic-minded Spartans. Arcadia also held anti-Spartan sentiments by the late 470s BC. If you recall from episode 35 as well, Cleomenes had been forced to flee into exile to Arcadia, where he began to create his own league to put down Sparta. The formation of this league and its threat to Sparta led to the recall of Cleomenes, who ultimately committed suicide. However, the league was now in existence and only needed a leader to give it direction. There was also Tegea in the heart of the Peloponnese and close to the borders of Laconia. Tegea fought loyally beside Sparta in the Battle of Plataea, but by the late 470s BC, they too once again had reason to fear Sparta and was looking for anti-Spartan allies. Furthermore, the polis of Elis and Mantinea both had arrived late for the Battle of Plataea which seems hard to explain, as there was almost two weeks of skirmishing before the actual battle was fought, as we discussed last episode. Unless this lateness was an excuse, similar to that of Argos, to avoid fighting under Spartan leadership. Well, both states, Sinoicized in 471 BC, meaning that a number of independent villages around each polis decided to unite with them into one bigger state and have a shared citizenship and a common foreign policy. They both also adopted a democratic constitution. Although it is not stated, this might have been done at the behest of Themistocles. The Sinoicism of Elis on the borders of the Mycenaean Helots and of Mantinea in Arcadia, in the heart of the Peloponnese, making both now stronger and democratic, struck fear into the Spartans, as it would be harder for them to dominate centralized cities rather than scattered towns. These five polis had one thing in common. Hostility towards the Spartans in the late 470s BC but they would only become a threat to Sparta if they combined their respective strengths. In order to do this, they needed a remarkable politician with exceptional powers of persuasion and patience to bring about the required coalition. Onto the stage steps Themistocles. Using Argos as a base, he drew together the strands of the policy that he had been working on throughout the entire decade. The result was a forging of the anti-Spartan alliance with Argos, Arcadia, Tegea, Mantinea, and Elis. His success was so alarming to the Spartans that they began leveling accusations once again of Themistocles' complicity in Pausanias' treason. They demanded that he be tried by a council of all Greeks, rather than by the Athenians. Although Pausanias was most likely guilty, and he was most likely innocent, Themistocles knew that the outcome would be similar if he were to give himself up, so he fled into the Peloponnese to the island of Corsaira, a large island off the northwestern coast of Greece. From there, he went directly across the coast to the region of Epirus, where he became a suppliant at the court of Admetus, the king of the Molosians. His flight probably only served to convince his enemies of his guilt, 
It should be noted that both Diodorus and Plutarch believed that the charges were false and were made solely for the purposes of destroying Themistocles' political career. In late 471 BC, the Spartans sent ambassadors to Admetus, threatening that the whole of Greece would go to war with the Milesians if he did not hand over Themistocles. Admetus, however, allowed Themistocles to escape, giving him a large sum of gold to aid him on his way. He then fled from Greece, apparently never to return, thus effectively bringing his political career to an end. He made his way to Pydna in Macedon. From there, he took a ship to Ephesus in Asia Minor. The ship was blown off course by a storm and ended up at Naxos, which an Athenian fleet was in the process of besieging. More on that shortly. Desperate to avoid identification, Themistocles pestered the captain of the ship to continue the journey immediately, and according to Thucydides, his ship eventually landed safely at Ephesus, where he disembarked and spent the next several years living obscurely in Asia Minor. As Athens used the Delian League to spread their influence and gain power, some poles inevitably began to wonder if the League was necessary anymore. Finally, in 470 BC, the island of Naxos decided to quit sending ships and attending the League meetings. The Athenians, though, wouldn't let this happen. And so the Naxians rebelled, and in response, the Athenians blockaded the island and forcefully put the rebellion down. Then, Naxos was punished. They no longer were a free ally, but a subject state and forced to pay money as pharos. Their walls were taken down and their fleet taken away. This would become the standard operating procedure in the future for all those who rebelled from the League. Thucydides writes, quote, Naxos was the first allied city deprived of its freedom, contrary to Greek custom. End quote. Although Thucydides gives no reasons for Naxos's revolt, we can surmise that it was probably a combination of Athens' increasingly high-handed behavior and a growing sense of security that the Persian threat was over. It would be valuable to know the feelings of the Allies about their treatment of Naxos. Undoubtedly, the majority still believed that they needed this league, as the Persian threat to the Aegean was far from over, and they didn't want any members to just quit. While some would have felt the same resentment against the Athenians, and thus felt sympathy towards the Naxians. Naxos had been the Persians' prime target on two separate occasions in order to gain control of the Cyclades, and for that reason, it was too important strategically to just be allowed to secede. Regardless, this event marked a huge turning point in Athens' relations with its Delian League allies. By this time, many of the allies had reverted to simply just paying cash as pharos, because it was easier than providing ships or military service. This development highlighted the problematic nature of the Delian League. A strong case was made that since all Greek polis benefited from the existence of the League, all should pay tribute and support its fleet. Against this argument, however, resentful polis adduced their right to make their own determinations about the extent of the Persian threat. Because the League's existence was justified only by the need for continued protection of Greece from the Persians, a problem would be created for the Athenians if their navy did too good of a job against the Persians. As it seemed less and less likely that the Persians were still a threat, their success brought about more and more problems for Athens. Meanwhile, the Spartans had their share of troubles too. 
Although they had managed to dislodge Themistocles from both Athens and the Peloponnese, it was too late. The anti-Spartan coalition had already been formed, and it's something the Spartans would have to deal with in the following decade. To see how both the Athenians and Spartans handled their problems in the 460s BC, join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 41, The End of an Era. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes in your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry. The podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode, or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Mm-hmm.